Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode of Q&A, a conversation with Helen Andrews, a millennial journalist who writes for the American Conservative Magazine. She's the author of a new book, Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. She profiles six public figures from the baby boom generation whom she says put the country on the wrong track. Journalist Helen Andrews, you have a new book, Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. In its preface, you explain how the book came to be. What's the story? Well, I'm a millennial, and the idea for the book started when I looked around at a lot of my peers and noticed that we were all feeling a little bit dispossessed. Um, First of all, in a material sense, um, you know, uh, the amount of wealth that we had accumulated by the age of about 35 is less than Gen X had at that age and uh, about a quarter less than the boomers had at the same age. So materially, we felt like we were really falling behind, but also culturally and socially uh, dispossessed. There was a sense that a lot of the functioning institutions that the boomers had inherited just didn't get passed down to us, uh, that the boomers had kind of spent down our social capital um, and, and, you know, lived on the capital and left us with not very much. Um, so a lot of the things that we were supposed to inherit, we didn't. And I wanted to look back at history and find out how that happened and, and why. Well, it also, in the way you approach the subject, has uh, a, a provenance in history, a book called Eminent Victorians. What was that book and why did it inspire your approach to the topic of boomers? Uh, Eminent Victorians was one of the great classic takedown books It was written by an author named Lytton Strachey, who was part of the Bloomsbury group, palling around with Virginia Woolf and her friends. And he, like a good bohemian intellectual, hated Victorian values. He thought they were stuffy and repressive. And this was for a long time quite a minority, you know, bohemian opinion. But he was lucky enough to publish his big takedown of the Victorians in 1918, right after World War I when Britain was feeling traumatized and had a deep sense in the majority of the population that something must have gone deeply wrong to have led civilization to such a bloody climax. And so along comes Lytton Strachey saying, the problem is those stuffy old Victorians and all the things that they believed in. Um, And so the book became a bit of a phenomenon. And so a lot of the kind of cynicism and frivolity that you see 
dominating the culture of the 1920s is a hangover from those people saying, oh, all the Victorians believing in, in stuffy old things like morals and religion, that was a mistake. Uh, we're going to move beyond that now. And the thing about eminent Victorians that I took as a model for me was that he did his takedown in a series of biographies. And I like that because as a reader, I tend to get very frustrated with books about generations, you know, which is funny to say as someone who's just written one, but I find that they very often devolve into generalizations about generalizations. And so I wanted to ground my book in individuals. So I picked six representative baby boomers who I thought really captured something about that generational experience in their life stories. Well, I wanted to explore that a bit more because, in fact, I had the same reaction that generational generalizations are just that. So what are the qualities of the millennial generation and the boomer generation, each respectively, that transcend issues or socioeconomic issues, gender issues and the like? Um, well, the, the one liner about boomers that I didn't come up with, but which I think is brilliant, is that they're the generation that sold out but would never admit that they sold out. It's a combination of, on the one hand, a great deal of idealism and a sense of themselves as very uh, morally noble, uh, noble idealists liberating humanity. But on the other hand, a great deal of selfishness and, and narcissism uh, and kind of a blindness to the ways that their liberationist agenda knocked down a lot of functioning institutions and left a lot of people worse off. Um, because the boomers have this selfish idea that as long as they're doing better, it doesn't really matter about the institution. And that's a very toxic combination um, when, you, when it becomes as prevalent as it was uh, among the boomers, this combination of idealism on the one hand and selfishness on the other. Um, and so millennials living in this world kind of denuded of the old institutions that used to keep society functioning have had to become very scrappy and self-reliant and uh, I think that's the, the dominant um, uh, quality of millennials as I see it. We really have to fend for ourselves, which in some ways is good and promotes self-reliance, but on the other hand, leaves us very untrusting uh, and is not a good way to run a society. We better define millennials and boomers for our watchers. So, uh, what are the years that each generation encompasses? Uh, the boomers are technically people born between 1945 and either 1962 or 1964, um, although some of the younger boomers, you start trending into, into Gen X. Millennials, uh, that's a bit fuzzier, but rule of thumb is people born after 1980. Uh, I was born in 1986. And uh, it ends at about 1996, so the oldest are going to be 40 this year. Oldest boomers, uh, and these... these uh, Parameters change from site to site that you look at. Uh, I looked at Pew, for example. The oldest boomers would be turning 75 in 2021. So what was the hand that boomers were delivered that, that they failed to make good on? Um, well, I, I've mentioned institutions several times so far, and I think that looking at all of the various um, realms of society where the boomers have done their damage, that's kind of the running theme. They are against institutions. They see them as constraining. Um, but on the, but one of the institutions that they've torn down is the family, uh, the institution of the family, because they felt that was too restrictive and restraining. Um, but in the aftermath of the boomer liberation, um, 
I suppose they thought we would have some kind of liberated utopia where everyone would be emotionally satisfied with their family lives. But actually what we see is something that looks a lot more like wreckage. Um, so functioning families, functioning churches, uh, fun functioning politics, political parties are just a lot different today than they were when the boomers inherited them. Um, they're a lot more individualistic. Um, so that's kind of the running theme. Uh, the boomers inherited functioning institutions and failed to pass them on. So since you dealt with individuals who are emblematic of aspects of society, who are the six that you profiled? Uh, they are, uh, if I can get them in the correct order, uh, Steve Jobs, Aaron Sorkin, Camille Paglia, Jeffrey Sachs, Al Sharpton, and Sonia Sotomayor. So you see, it's a pretty good spread. Somebody from tech, somebody from Hollywood, somebody from academia, which is uh, hugely important to the boomer story, uh, and the uh, Supreme Court justice. It was interesting that you didn't choose anyone from your own field of journalism. You know, there were so many people uh, that I had to leave out. I would have loved to have somebody from journalism uh, or somebody from finance, which is, of course, a huge um, the, you know, the, uh, the rise of economics as kind of the dominant field. So there were a lot of stories that I just didn't get a chance to tell, but I didn't want to make the book too long. Well, perhaps there's a boomers too in your, in your future. Uh, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time with a couple of these people so that viewers uh, have an understanding of how you approached it and what their theory is. Let's start with Aaron Sorkin. Who is Aaron Sorkin? Aaron Sorkin, uh, got his start as the uh, young sensation who wrote A Few Good Men. If you can picture Jack Nicholson saying, you can't handle the truth, that's Aaron Sorkin. And so once he moved out west to Hollywood from uh, New York City, where he'd been uh, in theater, he started a little show called The West Wing. Uh, and uh, that's what he's most known for. Um, and then he did a few TV shows after that and is now directing features, including... Funnily enough, um, he wrote the biopic of Steve Jobs. We have a clip from our archive of Dee Dee Myers, Clinton administration press secretary, on, uh, and later after she left the, the White House became a contributor to the West Wing. This is July 14, 2001, where she talks about the impact of the series. Let's watch. It portrays people who work in politics and public service as real people, as people who get up every day and do their best to do the right thing, to try to make the country a better place. And yes, they stumble, they fall short, they are human, but they get up the next day and they try to do it right. And I read this pilot and I thought, boy, this is great, but it's never going to get made. It was the height of the impeachment um, scandal. And uh, I just thought people are going to come home after, you know, seeing this all day in real life, and they're not going to want to uh, watch it on television, um, which goes to show you why I didn't choose television as my primary career. <laughs> because the show did get made, um, and NBC bought it, and the critics loved it, and now it's found a huge audience among the American people, an almost cult-like following. And I can't tell you how satisfying that has been for everybody involved in the show, because we believed in the show, we worked hard on the show, um, and we took the audience seriously. Um, this is a show that deals with complex issues in all of their complexities. It doesn't talk down um, to the audience. It doesn't treat them like they're stupid. And not in spite of that, but because of that, it's found this wonderful, loyal audience. And I can't tell you how many phone calls 
calls, I've gotten many from people in this room, people saying, hey, I want you to, this, here's an idea for a story. Here's an issue that I'd love to see you get into the West Wing. Because it's an intelligent dialogue that is educating people, is inspiring people, um, and is changing not just the way people think about the process, but I think the way people think about people who are participating in the process. And that's a wonderful thing. I don't want to overemphasize it because at the end of the day, it is still a television show. Um, but I think it's doing some good. It's not just entertaining us, it is educating us and inspiring us. The show aired for seven seasons on NBC, 1999 to 2006, during the George W. Bush presidency. This essay is about the power of television. So what are your critiques? Uh, well, gosh, D.D. Myers said that uh, West Wing went on TV at the time of the impeachment, and she she's actually underrating that. Aaron Sorkin has said in interviews that the moment he pressed finish on the pilot script was, you know, within 24 hours of the Monica Lewinsky story breaking. So, in fact, when he pitched the show to NBC, they sat on it for a year because they said, we can't go on with this now because nobody wants to show, uh, watch a show about, you know, White House staffers during the Lewinsky impeachment nonsense. Um, and I have my own personal sense of the timeline of the West Wing because I am exactly the right age um, uh, that my peers are people, you know, the people that I knew in the Yale Political Union went into politics because they watched the West Wing. Um, you know, they watched it in high school and decided, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, and I think living in Washington, D.C., where I do now, there are an awful lot of people of whom that is true. I don't know if that's disturbing to the rest of America to know that they're being uh, ruled by a ruling class that chose their particular careers because of a TV show, but it's true. Um, the tragic irony of that is that Aaron Sorkin is not himself an especially political person. Um, so that's the substance of, of my critique, is that he has said over and over again that he didn't make the West Wing because he cares so much about politics. He's just, uh, he just likes the sound of smart people debating, smart people talking to each other, that rat-a-tat-tat dialogue. And it just seemed like politics would be a good venue for having smart people talk to each other. So he was almost a pied piper to my generation, drawing people into politics without himself caring all that much about it one way or the other. So that sounds like a good thing, drawing people into politics. Where's the problem? Uh, the problem is that this idealism is essentially false. Um, that uh, this idea of going into politics because you're going to change the world, the rosy world of the West Wing is just very, very different from the nitty gritty of how you actually get things done in Washington. Um, and so you get people who are, uh, I would almost say, naive about politics uh, because their view of what they do was shaped by um, the West Wing. If you watch the show, you will notice that there are many ripped from the headlines examples. I mean, Dee Dee Myers was a consultant on the show, and so were a lot of other Clinton veterans, and they fed Sorkin stories from their own times. So you'll be able to recognize, oh, uh, you know, that particular storyline is based on something that happened in 1996. But... The more of those stories you notice, the more it becomes clear that Sorkin changed the ending. Uh, Sorkin took these stories from the Clinton years and gave them a happy ending. Um, you know, there was uh, an instance where, well, <laughs> a funny story from the Clinton years is that a phrase from the Communist Manifesto 
was dropped in a State of the Union address, and it went through nine different drafts before an intern finally pointed it out and said, are you quite sure we want to be quoting Karl Marx in the State of the Union? I think we might get in trouble for that. Um, whereas in the West Wing, you know, they catch the quote right away. Um, so he, he altered history in order to make it all come out right in the end. But the truth is that in real politics, things don't, don't always come out right in the end. And the noble idealists don't always win. And if you go in thinking that they will, you're going to make some mistakes. And would you say as a whole, the people who were inspired to go into politics as a result of the West Wing were like-minded in their ideology? Or does it cross political ideologies? Um, I really want to be fair to Aaron Sorkin. He did his very best to not make the West Wing uh, an exclusively liberal show. He brought in conservative, you know, Republican consultants, veterans of Bush one, uh, and he tried to write Republican characters who were noble uh, and just as high minded as his uh, liberal Democratic characters. So he really tried to be fair. But the truth is that if you watch the show, it just didn't come off because so many of the people make. I mean, it's Hollywood. It, it does have a liberal slant. Um, so despite his best efforts to make it high-minded, I don't think he quite succeeded. I couldn't help but think when I was reading that chapter that it was NBC who gave us The West Wing, but starting in 2005, they also gave us The Apprentice, starting Donald Trump. Uh, So here's another program that ended up having a pretty big impact on politics. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it's really, a. if you wanted to put uh, sort of the change in politics in the last 30 years into a sentence, you would say it has become TVified. It's become a lot more like a reality show. Um, and the election of Donald Trump was kind of the apotheosis of that. Uh, but I don't think that's a good thing. There's a funny story uh, that Armando Iannucci tells. Uh, he's the guy who's the creator of Veep. And he says that when he was researching Veep, he went to the Obama White House and looked around uh, to get a sense of how it is in the, in the West Wing. And he said that the people who showed him around pointed out little things in terms of the West Wing. You know, they would say, oh, that's the desk where Josh would work, or that's the desk where Donna would work. And Yanucci was thinking to himself, no, 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 those are fake people. It would be much better for you to say that's the desk where I work, uh, you know, or somebody else works, because you're real. Why are you thinking of your own job in terms of this TV show from 1999? But, you know, when you, it's, it's really not very good to think of uh, your job as a TV show if you're working in the West Wing. But as the Ianucci story shows, that's, that's how people do think of it. Both of these series aired at a time when television was the dominant entertainment medium in Americans' households. Today, it is a multitude of streaming services and cable networks and lots of choice. Is it still possible for a series, a video series, to have as much impact as you think The West Wing did? Um, I do, actually. Um, I think, uh, I, one thing that Aaron Sorkin has been criticized for is being a bit of a fuddy-duddy and being net-phobic. Um, you know, he, he, he has dropped into a lot of his shows, uh, sort of denigrating comments about online news and things like Gawker. Uh, he's clearly much more comfortable in the old, uh, old media of, you know, you almost get the sense he would be happy back in the good old days when there were three networks and that's it. Um, But I think it's, there's, I think people tend to go too far in the other direction and overrate the uh, importance of online news. I think that television and Hollywood and movies 
still have an immense amount of power, more even than politics. Um, you know, it's uh, the Hollywood, the decisions made by Hollywood film producers and writers are in many ways more important than the ones made by people in the West Wing. So I think Aaron Sorkin's uh, sort of grandiose sense of the power of TV is entirely accurate. And the next of the six profiles you did that I'm going to highlight is Camille Paglia. Who is she? Uh, Camille Paglia is uh, a humble professor. You know, she's a public intellectual uh, um, of a kind that uh, is is a, a rather old fashioned today. We, there aren't that many celebrity professors. She's one of the last ones. Um, but she burst onto the scene in the 1990s. Um, with a book called Sexual Personae, which became a best-selling phenomenon, which is rather unusual for a you know doorstop book of literary criticism. But that's just a testament to her rhetorical power. She's a really inventive writer, uh, and when she ventured into punditry and started you know weighing in on on day-to-day culture, in addition to her academic work, uh, she made herself a, a celebrity commentator quite deservedly because she's a, a really really brilliant writer. So what is your critique of Camille Paglia? If you were to look at the, the accomplishment of Camille Paglia, probably her greatest one is the idea that popular culture is just as legitimate a subject of academic inquiry as the great classics. Uh, and, and that was really an uphill battle for her in the 90s when she was going around saying that, you know, Madonna is just as legitimate a subject for me to be thinking about as a professor as Milton. Um, but I think that the consequences of that revolution of bringing pop culture into the academy and overrating uh, its importance and its substance has been that nowadays you have lots and lots of professors in the academy who know pop culture and nothing else. You know, they get their PhDs in soprano studies because thanks to the Camille Paglia pop culture revolution, you can do that now. And whatever else you want to say about Camille Paglia, she is an immensely educated woman. She knows her Milton and her Spencer. And so she was bringing that extremely educated mind to bear uh, when she thought about things like Madonna. Um, But by sort of elevating pop culture in the way that she did, she has yielded a generation of younger scholars who don't have that grounding. Um, and so I, I think it was probably a mistake um, for her to uh, elevate pop culture and visual culture and movies and TV to the same level as the great classics. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's hear Camille Paglia in her own words. This is from 2017, and she was discussing her book, Free Women, Free Men. I was 
one of the what we later would call pro-sex feminists. Right? So in the um, you know 1970s, for example, um, you know I loved Charlie's Angels. Okay, I loved uh, Cosmopolitan magazine. I loved Scavulo's covers. I mean, meanwhile, meanwhile, the other feminists were like occupying Helen Gurley Brown's offices and like wanting the whole magazine to be shut down, etc. There's no way I could be you know, taken into the women's movement. I was I was drummed right out of it. You know, right from the start. Okay, so people who say, oh, she was made by feminine. What do you? I was not made, okay, by Betty Friedan. As I say in the book, Betty Friedan did not create Germaine Greer in Australia, and she did not create me in upstate New York, okay? Right? And it's about time people realize that the, the, the transformations in women that happened very radically in the mid-20th century are not entirely due to the women's movement. In the chapter on Camille Paglia, you not only talk about the more or less dumbing down of academia, which we just talked about, but you also talk about the great rise in pornography as acceptable in uh, our culture. What do you see as Camille Paglia's role in that? Uh, Well, uh, she talked uh, in the clip you just gave about feminism. And I think that's one reason why a lot of political conservatives, people on my side of politics, really like Camille Paglia. Because she was, gosh, just a a slashing enemy uh, of the second wave feminists. And it was really wonderful to see her take them down. Um, And her line, you know, she she saw them as as uptight and school marmish. Um, But I think that's a case where conservatives have thought the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, But that's not really the case with Camille Paglia. Um, She's a a pro-sex feminist, she calls herself. And that was very effective when she was trying to take down the school marmish second wave. Um, But it also led her to be naive in her own way about... Uh, what would happen in the aftermath of of sexual liberation. Um, She has said, you know, she loves pornography. She loves prostitution um, because she thinks they're they're liberating. Um, But however that may have looked to her from the perspective of the 1970s, for a millennial growing up at a time of streaming video, we live in the most porn-saturated generation in all of human history. That's not an exaggeration. Human history. This is unprecedented. Um, And it has had lots of toxic effects that I think uh, Camille Paglia should have been able to foresee, but did not. Such as? Um, Let's see. Uh, Pornography today is a lot more toxic than it ever was, Um, in addition to being a lot more widespread. Uh, People are seeing it at younger ages, Um, more people are looking at it. Um, But the rise of streaming video uh, did something very bad to the pornography industry. Um, Because all of the video is now available for free, the producers are no longer able to compete on price. Um, And so in order to get their product eyeballs, um, the only sort of dimension they can compete on is going to greater and greater gonzo feats of insanity and making things just more depraved. Um, That's the only way they can kind of um, set their product apart in a saturated market for pornography as exists now in a place like RedTube. Um, But what that does is just leads to a a ratcheting up and up and up. Um, So pornography is no longer, you know, if, if you hear pornography and you're thinking like a 1970s Playboy spread, that's not what's out there right now. It's just a lot more dangerous, a lot more deforming uh, to the sexualities of young people, especially when they're fed a constant diet of it from the age of 13. Um, so the, yeah, that's, that's definitely one thing that's different, uh, 
between Camille Paglia's day and ours. You, the statistic you have in your chapter is that most the first age American children encounter pornography is generally about 11. Uh, so ultimately, what's the, what is the impact on uh, humans uh, being exposed to pornography at that early age? What do you see as it happening for, for example, your children going forward? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm terrified of, uh, although hopefully by the time my little children are that age, things will have changed. Um, but, uh, uh, sexuality is, uh, if you think of it as a, as a river, uh, carving out a canyon, you know, if you, if you form certain habits, uh, they might be a matter of choice when you're young, but if you persist in them, uh, they become deeper and deeper and harder to get out of. And that's why so many millennials talk about pornography in the language of addiction. They feel like they are addicted to these videos um, because it's just very hard to break those habits once you form them. And so if you're being formed by videos that are more and more depraved because of the dynamic uh, that I just explained, then that's going to make people just sexually different than any other generation. And that's why you see a lot of millennials, you know, um, with really deformed sexualities. Uh, this is a chapter on academia, on, on feminism, and, and I'm wondering about the Me Too movement, whether or not that is a product of the millennial generation and how that intersects with uh, the rise in exposure to pornography in society. Yeah, it's um, in many ways, uh, the Me Too movement was the result of uh, the kind of liberation that Camille Paglia is talking about, because she's doesn't when she's uh, has her line of pro-sex feminism, that doesn't just liberate women; it also liberates men as well. And it turns out that when you liberate men to act on their sexualities, you know sometimes it's it's not always pretty. Sometimes they do bad and toxic things. Um, it's funny. Uh, I think Camille Paglia has consistently underrated the damage caused by uh, sexual harassment. She uh, is a very great believer in um, girl power. And, and she has this idea that women should be able to shut down sexual harassment just by being w wonderful and empowered and telling men, you know, don't, don't you dare do that, when it doesn't always work that way. Um, she wrote a book about the birds, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. And that's a, a, a movie that had a very notorious case of sexual harassment going on on the set um, with Alfred Hitchcock um, torturing Tippi Hedren um, because she wouldn't go to bed with him. And uh, Camille Paglia, in her book, writes as if Tippi Hedren should have just been an empowered woman and told Alfred Hitchcock no and stood up to the torture. And it wasn't really that big a deal um, in a way that kind of downplays just how traumatic that movie-making experience was for Tippi Hedren. So I think that's a real... Camille Paglia's inability to talk honestly about Alfred Hitchcock's sexual harassment in her book on the movie where it happened is a sort of an encapsulating example of what's naive about her pro-sex feminism. Next one I wanted to focus on is Al Sharpton. If you look in the C-SPAN library, there are literally hundreds of videos of us covering him over the course of his career. He's in front of the cameras frequently in the public sphere. Uh, the one we chose is quite recent, August 28, 2020, a national net National Action Network, which is his organization, rally at the Lincoln Memorial in the wake of George Floyd's killing and the protests that ensued. Let's watch. They keep telling me 
about how it's a shame that black parents have to have the conversation with our children. How we have to explain if a cop stops you, don't reach for the glove compartment. Don't talk back. The conversation. Well, we've had the conversation for decades. It's time we have a conversation with America. We need to have a conversation about your racism, about your bigotry, about your hate, about how you would put your knee on our neck while we cry for our lives. We need a new conversation. Al Sharpton, you write, is different from some of the other people that you profiled because he grew up being uh, wanting to be exactly what he was, a minister, uh, where others had an arc over, of, of their lifetime of change. Uh, so what are Al Sharpton's accomplishments? Let's start with that. Um, yeah, he's certainly been very consistent. Um, he's doing the same thing now that he's been doing for the past several decades. And so that, that longevity is a testament to his uh, effectiveness. Um, he's, a, he's the kind of guy where if you've got some kind of racial conflict in your town where there's been an ambiguous police shooting, you can get him on the phone and he will come right there. Um, there are just a dozen examples, more dozens uh, of him doing that over the years. Um, but in the clip you just gave, I think that's almost a, a great illustration of the downside of that consistency, that he is still talking today uh, as if race relations have not changed since he first became a campaigner in the 1960s, um, that uh, there has been no progress. He's just running the same old playbook. Um, and so I think that's probably the, the biggest weakness of him as a civil rights campaigner, uh, however effective he might be at it. His chapter is also a discussion by you on the difference between transformational and transactional leadership. Can you talk about those two concepts and, and how, how effective each is? Uh, yeah, there are, there are two kinds of leaders, basically, um, transformational leaders and transactional. Um, this is, you know, Al Sharpton's concept, how he thinks about his own leadership. A transformational leader um, kind of changes the way people think. Martin Luther King was a transformational leader. Um, he was out there changing minds, altering uh, uh, people's hearts. A transactional leader is something much more humble. He's a deal maker. He tries to forge compromises. Um, and one of the greatest revolutions that the boomers accomplished was saying that transform transformational leadership is the only good kind, that transactional leaders should be looked down upon. They're, they're compromising with the enemy. Um, you know, they're, they're, there's no nobility in that. Um, they're sellouts. Sellouts is what a transactional leader is. But the truth is that transactional leadership is really important. You know, if you've got groups of people that disagree and you need to make a deal, you need to make compromises. You need somebody uh, who's willing to sacrifice a little bit of this noble uh, sound of idealism and just get a deal accomplished. Um, and so by denigrating transactional leadership, uh, the boomers have made it a lot harder for us to reach uh, satisfactory compromises. Uh, Al Sharpton, I think, is definitely trying to be a leader in the transformational mode. Um, but I think at, at the expense of, of worthwhile compromise. Well, you, you do reference the difference between a 
civil rights leader like Reverend Sharpton and the Black Lives Matter movement leaders? What is the difference and how they operate and their potential for success in changing society? You know, the, their difference is entirely to Sharpton's advantage. He outclasses them in so many ways. So the chapter is very critical of Al Sharpton, but uh, definitely compared to the Black Lives Matter uh, leaders, he's just a lot better. I would take him over them any day. And the difference is uh, a matter of democracy. You know, Al Sharpton, uh, even his bitterest enemies know that he is a leader with a following. He's the kind of guy who can get people on the phone, who can get thousands of people to his rally. When he ran for mayor of New York City in the 1990s, he very nearly uh, won the Democratic Party nomination. Um, you know, and it wasn't just the black vote that got him there. He, he a lot, you know, thousands of people came out and pulled the lever for Al Sharpton. By contrast, uh, DeRay McKesson, who's one of the big uh, Black Lives Matter leaders to come out of Ferguson, Missouri, tried his hand at uh, the, a Democratic contest and wanted to run for mayor of Baltimore. And he got something like 3,000 votes, uh, you know, 3%. You know, he, he did not do well in that Democratic spread. So they, the power of the Black Lives Matter leader, Black Lives Matter movement comes from social media, uh, but that doesn't translate to actual people um, with actual Democratic support from, from normal, ordinary people. And whatever else you want to say about Al Sharpton, he has that. What do you think about the numerous protests that have arisen during 2020 and their their power to affect change in society? Um, you know, I'm quite critical of them. And I think that there's a, a, I think they come from a place of anxiety, to be honest. Um, at the time, in the golden age of the civil rights movement, the race problem in America was a matter of black and white. Today, that's no longer the case. Um, you know, Hispanics outnumber blacks by almost two to one. In many states, uh, Asians outnumber blacks. We live in a multicultural America rather than just a black and white biracial America. And that changes the civil rights conversation drastically. And so uh, a lot of the, you know, black issues no longer loom as large as they did because it's no longer just a matter of, of two races, it's, it's multicultural. And so I think there's an anxiety on the part of a lot of civil rights activists thinking, does this mean our day is over? Does this mean we're no longer the most important minority in America, that we can no longer kind of uh, rush to the front of the conversation when America is talking about racial issues? Um, and so because there, there's that anxiety that their issues may no longer be of uh, such preeminent importance the way that they were in the 1960s, um, that they need to really uh, be as loud as possible as they can possibly be and have this huge movement before people say, eh, your issues are not as important. We need to talk about Hispanic America. We need to talk about Asian America. Um, and so kind of a fear of the coming multicultural America is, you know, people talk about, you know, white anxiety being a driver of racial issues. I think that's a kind of anxiety that's underreported and it's fueling a lot of the current protests. One of the other tangible results of uh, this year uh, in the area of, of civil rights and race relations has been the removal of Confederate era symbols uh, across the country. And uh, in the American Conservative magazine, in an essay on Robert E. Lee, you wrote, I used to side with the people who wanted to tear down all the Confederate monuments, indicating that you've changed your mind on this. Why? Um, because I used to trust 
that it would stop there, um, that the people who wanted to tear down Robert E. Lee would not then demand tearing down Thomas Jefferson and George Washington as well. Uh, and I think the last year has shown that that was overly optimistic on my part, um, that the people who wanted to tear down the monuments in Virginia would not stop at Robert E. Lee and that they're going to tear down Columbus and Ulysses S. Grant, um, who owned a slave for about five minutes, uh, you know, despite being a great Union general, his statue got toppled this year. Um, so just a, a lot of the trust that I had in the people who were opponents of those statues uh, is just gone. Um, that's really where that's coming from. Does um, each generation have the right to decide its own heroes? The danger of answering yes to that question is that it means that everything is always up for grabs and you lose any sense of historical continuity. And what that leads to is a great sense of arrogance on the part of the young. You know, we can reinvent history every five minutes if we want to. We don't owe anything to our ancestors. And the truth is that I think we do owe a lot to history. Uh, we had come into this world as inheritors of a great tradition and a great civilization, a great country. And it's our job to, um, you know, first of all, be grateful for that, and then to be good stewards of what we've inherited and then pass it uh, along. Um, and I think the boomers had no sense of continuity in that way. And I think that's something that we need to recapture. So no, each generation does not get to reinvent America on its own. Um, we are a link in a chain and we need to act like it. So in those three examples of the six profiled in your book, Boomers, each of them has made contributions to society. Uh, but in your analysis, those are outweighed by what you call irreparable harm. So, so help me understand the, the, the final analysis of, of the people you profiled and what they've done to American society. Uh, you're right that uh, all of them are people of enormous accomplishment. Uh, I did not want to profile anybody who was just a, a total failure or anybody that I didn't respect. I respect and in many ways admire uh, all of the boomers that I profiled. And as a writer, I was attracted to stories with a tragic irony to them, you know, where they, they tried to accomplish something great and it had effects contrary to their intentions that they didn't foresee. Um, you know, that's that's just the, the essence of good storytelling and good tragedy. Um, so the the accomplishment and the achievement of all of these people is a crucial part of the story. Um, but an example would be Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs uh, contributed enormously to civilization, to human happiness. You know, anybody who owns an iPhone owes a debt to Steve Jobs. Um, and it really came from a, a noble sentiment on his part. He thought that computers could liberate human creativity. And in many ways they did. Uh, and so we, we certainly owe him gratitude for that. The trouble is that it also enabled kind of the uberization of the economy. If you were to talk about millennial grievances and gripes, the gig economy would be very near the top of that list. Millennials are just a lot more economically precarious as employees than any generation um, in the last hundred years. Uh, and that has been enabled by the very technology that Steve Jobs thought would set us free. Uh, it has left us enslaved as, 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 you know, Uberized employees. So, you know, the, the, the two sides of the coin are inseparable, and that's a good example. 
you, you've described the damage in your book that these uh, folks and the trends around them as being irreparable. When I read that, it made me think it doesn't give very much credit to the millennial generation and their ability to craft their own way in American society. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, one huge difference. You know, if you were a time traveler and you went from 1960 to 2020, one of the huge differences you'd notice is the rise of women in the workplace. Um, it used to be that three quarters of families in America in 1960s were single earner families. Um, and today it's about two thirds dual earners. So that's a huge social revolution. Um, I think in many ways, there are a lot of millennials who feel like they are only in dual earner households because they have to be. You know, the, the, the women say, I would love to stay home and raise my own kids, but financially we just couldn't make it work. And I'm a believer that in what's called the two income trap that what happened in the 70s and 80s when women flooded into the workplace was that it did not actually make their households better off because it just led to a bidding up, a bidding war for middle-class amenities like housing uh, and cars um, so that now the, the requirements for a middle-class life are just more expensive and you need two earners to get them. Um, so the two-income trap is the term that Elizabeth Warren coined for that. But if you're a millennial today thinking, okay, that was a mistake to tell women that you have to be in the workforce in order to be a self-actualized human being, that was a mistake. We should dial that back and, and maybe say, you can work if you want to, but it shouldn't be an economic requirement. The problem is you can't do that because of the two-income trap, because uh, financially, the economic reality now is that you need two earners for a middle class lifestyle. So even if lots and lots of millennials think that was a mistake, we should go back, they can't because of the ratchet effect of the two income trap. Um, so there are a lot of things like that where millennials say, oh, I, we really probably should go back, um, but they're just not able to. Genie out of the bottle, more or less. Yeah. Exactly. So let me turn to politics. We have about 15 minutes left. Um, our country is about to be led not by a boomer, but uh, President Joe Biden will be 78, a member of the silent generation, as is Nancy Pelosi at age 80. Mitch McConnell, depending on the outcome of Georgia, is also a member of the silent generation. So what is the impact on the country of a leadership structure at the highest points of politics being a member not of boomers, but the silent generation? Yeah, I think we might have seen our last boomer president. Um, and uh, good riddance to bad rubbish. I, I'd be perfectly happy if we never had uh, another boomer president again. Um, but I think that even when the personnel in D.C. is no longer boomers, we're still living in the boomers world. And politics is still played by boomer rules. Um, and kind of the, the hinge point uh, after which... Uh, that became true when the boomer ascendancy took over politics uh, was 1972 uh, and the McGovern nomination when the Democratic Party left behind the old style of liberalism, things like unions and a working class sentiment, and sort of traded that for a, a new left mentality where the, the left wing party is now dominated by identity politics interest groups. Um, and kind of that's how uh, the left-wing party sees itself. And the Democratic Party is still that way today. Um, 
And that's why you've seen the dramatic shift where the left-wing party used to have an advantage among people without college educations, uh, whereas now people without college educations in the working class sort of bizarrely are voting for the right-wing party, um, which is in many ways, I think, a deep tragedy, right? Because the whole point of liberalism is supposed to be championing the least advantaged. Um, but if you're dominated by people with college degrees and not caring at all or earning the votes of people without college degrees, actual working class people, you've, you've sold out the people that you're supposed to be representing. So as long as the left-wing party still looks the way it, do, it did post-1972 and is dominated by identity politics rather than the good old left-wing of unions in the working class, then whether they're boomers or not, you know, whether Joe Biden is president or not, um, it's still a boomer party and, and boomer politics that we're living in. The 117th Congress will have 31 millennials in it, even though in 2019 uh, millennials became the majority population in, in our country. Why are there not more millennials in Congress? Uh, too busy trying to earn a living. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's another case where millennials in, who are in Congress are not bringing a breath of fresh air. They're not really bringing anything new. Um, it's almost disturbing to see how content many millennials are to just replay the old boomer style of politics. Uh, you know, they, they uh, campaign for the same issues, have the same slogans, have the same mantras. It's almost a kind of decadence um, that we're stuck in this, this replaying the boomer reel. We still think of the 1960s and the protests as being the height of American politics. And uh, we saw that get replayed this year. Millennials you know, went out into the streets and had their own little Chicago 1968. Uh, so I really wish millennials would move past uh, this sense of replaying the same old boomer reel. Uh, and maybe they would have more success if they did and actually brought something new rather than getting stuck in, in the boomer world. In our last 10 minutes, I wanted to tell our audience a little bit about you, Helen Andrews. Uh, so this year you tell readers that you not only published your first book, but you also had your first child all in the middle of the pandemic. What was the year like for you? Um, yeah, it uh, actually worked out very well for me um, because when I was, you know, pregnant and gigantic and not really wanting to leave the house, I didn't feel like I was missing out on a lot because nobody else was leaving their house either. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it was uh, surreal, but probably less surreal than it would have been otherwise, because I was, you know, living the pandemic lifestyle anyway what with being pregnant. You also tell your readers that you recently lost your dad and the book is dedicated to him. You describe your father as a liberal Southern lawyer of the Atticus Finch type. And you also describe your mother as a bit of a hippie. So how did a conservative thinker like yourself come from these parents? Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's really not an exaggeration to say that my father was like Atticus Finch, um, not just because he was a Southern lawyer, but he really did, you know, accept payment in kind from indigent clients. You know, in his case, it, it wasn't a, a bunch of collards from the Cunninghams. It was, you know, a client who worked at a warehouse for books and was able to give him uh, a, a complete set of the works of Mark Twain, a kind of deluxe edition. He accepted that as payment. <laughs> but yeah, he was a uh, very, very liberal in, in an Atticus Finch way. But, 
if you go back and read To Kill a Mockingbird, or or if you've ever if you ever met my father, you would see just how wide a conservative streak there is in that particular brand of liberalism. It's very old fashioned, um, and so I think uh, I was able to draw out the the best of what he was able to pass on, which was not quite liberalism as it was practiced by you know my millennial peers. Why did you decide to go to into journalism? Uh, it it happened by accident. Um, I just sort of uh, graduated from college without really much knowing what I wanted to do. And uh, in very millennial fashion, I had just started a blog. Uh, and from that blog was picked up by uh, a few magazines. Uh, and so I was kind of drafted from the blogosphere. Uh, so yeah, that's a, a very, very millennial story. Your, the essay seems to be your preferred format, uh, primary format for journalism, which seems to run counter to the age of Twitter. Uh, what is the power of an essay in conveying ideas today? Um, I think there's a, a real appetite out there for sustained thought. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the biggest writerly phenomenon when I was young uh, and kind of a teenager and growing up was David Foster Wallace. Uh, he was the, you know, the, the best writer in America, according to all of the young people I knew. And he was a great practitioner of the essay. Um, they're just finely crafted, some of the best essays that have ever been written in English. Um, and incidentally, or, you know, maybe not coincidentally, he was also a great critic of soundbite, you know, uh, c- addictive media. He was thinking mainly of TV, but gosh, he would have had a lot of things to say about Twitter. Um, So I think there's a real sense among millennials um, and has been since David Foster Wallace's heyday that the way we are consuming media and social media is bad for us. It's bad for our brains. Um, And so I really hope as a writer that I can offer an alternative to that and, and have uh, essays that allow your brain to slow down and engage in substantive thought, which you really can't do over the course of a tweet. What would be the best outcome of your book in the intellectual community as it goes into the marketplace? What would you like to see happen or the kind of conversation that it fosters? Uh, I would really like some angry reviews. I, I want to get some real pans. I want people to be outraged. Um, no, I, I don't think that's true. Um, uh, when I was writing it, I had to make a decision very early on. Do I want to write a book for conservatives or do I want to write a book for everybody? Um, you know, if you want to sell copies, there's a lot to be said for writing a book just for conservatives. You know, you can, uh, what's called red meat. You can write a red meat book, um, that will really gratify people's sense of outrage. Uh, but I made a decision not to do that, that I, I know that there are a lot of liberal millennials out there who are suffering, too, and who have a vague sense that something about the world they're living in just isn't right, and they can't quite put their finger on it. Uh, and I wanted to present my case for you know my answers to those questions in a way that a liberal reader wouldn't have an allergic reaction to. Um, so uh, that that would be my hope uh, if this book is able to cross ideological lines in that way. I mean, it's it's admittedly I have my own uh, 
political beliefs and their conservative beliefs. But this is not just a book for conservatives. Do you anticipate hearing from the five, any of the five that you profile uh, who are still alive? Yeah, uh, I approached a, a few of them um, to see if, if they were interested in, in talking to me, um, but I didn't, didn't get any bites on that. Uh, I hope that they think I've treated them fairly. Um, so if I get an angry response from any of them, uh, I'll be a little bit disappointed. Um, I, I, I hope that they, uh, well, some of them I hope are flattered, um, uh, but I hope that they all, at the very least, think that I've, I've told their stories fairly. But if any of them want to do uh, promotional events for my book tour, I'd be happy to go up and debate them. I think that would be very good for sales. I want to end on a different note. Over the past few months, you've frequently been on panels representing your support for President Trump. And as we get to the closing days of his presidency, um, I'm wondering what you think at this point his legacy will be. I am today, four years later, very proud to have supported President Trump in the primary and in the 2016 election. I think that there are a lot of issues that the Republican establishment didn't want to touch. Things like trade, things like uh, immigration, things like skepticism of foreign adventurism that were untouchable before he came along and started talking about them. And whether or not he succeeded in making progress on any of those issues uh, and any of the uh, agenda items that I care about, at the very least, they're in the conversation now. And I think it will be impossible to go back to the world, the pre-Trump world, where we could get, where Republicans could get away with never talking about trade or immigration or foreign wars um, and kind of ignoring the passionate beliefs of their base, uh, which were contrary to the beliefs of the Republican elite. Um, so I think that a lot of people who were being ignored for a long time aren't going to be ignored anymore. And we have Donald Trump to thank for that. And so for that, I feel a deep sense of gratitude to him. Of the 74 million who voted for President Trump, where do you think they will find their voice politically? Um, I don't know. Is Tulsi Gabbard going to run? Uh, I, I think that a lot of the people that voted for Trump uh, used to vote for Democrats. I mean, there were a lot of people who voted for Obama uh, and then voted for Trump. And so right now the question is whether they're going to go home to the Democrats or stick with the Republicans. Um, and I would be afraid that they would go back and start voting for the Democrats again um, and that it would be just a kind of a one-time thing uh, and the Republicans wouldn't be able to get their votes anymore. But thankfully... The Democratic Party is going so far off the left wing deep end that I think that's unlikely to happen, uh, which is probably mm, bad for America, but good for the Republicans. So I think those millions of people will hopefully uh, find a home on the right. And I hope the right can change and grow in order to make room for them, because they would be a very, very worthy part of any conservative coalition going forward. Helen Andrews' new book is called Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promise Freedom and Deliver Disaster, available where you buy books in mid-January. Thanks so much for giving C-SPAN an hour. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. 
And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.